You're listening to the Distinctive Christianity Podcast, where we clarify distinctions between Mormon and Credo Christian thought. I'm Brendan, here with Skylar. Sorry, I should have had this done before. Moving a mic, making all sorts of racket. I apologize. So, I've got a question for you today. What is that? I, I didn't warn you on this one, but, uh, you know, here's the question. If you were to join the circus, <laughs> what would you do? What would I do? I don't know, man, I'd probably make the popcorn. No, no, no. No? No, you're a circus no, performer. It, it, in the performance. Oh, yeah, yeah. Nothing with heights. You ever go to the circus before? You ever been? Once. Yeah, I came to UVU once. It's okay. It's pretty cool. Yeah. Um, there's nothing in that I can do. It's like I can't ride a bike. I yeah, but, <laughs> but you could do it. So if you could do anything, which one would you pick to do? Um, I feel like that's the question. The guy with the elephants? I don't know. Once again, that's not an act, though. The elephants <laughs> are the act. Elephant trainer for the circus. Yeah, elephant trainer. Okay. All right. All right. Okay. What about you? I think I'd be uh, I'd be one of the guys who did that. Uh, you know the thing that has the thing on the end of the thing, and then you'd like get on the thing and <laughs> just like three spinning things. And he's you know what I'm talking you about? Know, yeah, yeah, at the top. Well, like no, I'm thinking of the like thing. So it has it has two uh, cylindrical cages, and it's on like a massive. Um, oh. What's the word I'm looking for? Like, uh, <laughs> it spins. You know what I'm talking about? I think so. I think spin- so. Okay, so you got like the two circle things, yeah. and and then the whole contraption is on a fulcrum sort of deal that spins the entire thing, and then the guys get like inside and outside of the cages, the yeah. cylinders that they're in, and they walk on top of it and inside of it, and as the thing spins, they got to like run and jump and. They fly through the air and they do stuff. You do that, uh, yeah. That's what yeah. I do. Could your knees handle it? it probably Could not. <laughs> not at this stage in life. <laughs> Just twisted my knee a minute ago. It's oh, but it's all good. Hurt. Everything's good. The uh, the weird twinge went away rather quickly this time. So good. old man problems. I go yeah. to the gym. And I it's just been something I've been doing like the last year and haven't been healthy for a lot of years, but I was an athlete growing up. And so I used to be able to, you know, jump decently high, but it's funny because nowadays I'll, the, the gym I go to is the, the Provo rec center and they have the, the treadmills and stuff set up where you can overlook the basketball courts and always see all these young kids jumping up and grabbing the rim and dunking. And I just sit there and I think to myself, you know, I wonder, I wonder if I could still do that. And it was maybe, I don't know, two months ago or something. I was at a basketball court and I I tried to see how high I could jump. And it's like, I can't even touch the backboard anymore. Like it's, uh, (laughs) it's rough. It's like, it's like I go into it full speed ahead, Yeah, yeah. you know, like kicking my leg up in the air, ready to fly. It is like three inch vertical, yeah. you know, it's like, this is some real old man stuff right uh, here. 
but you know, I'm, you I'm working before? on the leg muscles and yeah. I never could dunk, but I always could, I, I could do like the white guy dunk sort of yeah. thing where it's like, you can get up and grab the rim and mm-hmm. kind of get the ball to go in after yeah. it hits the backboard. Yeah. No, <laughs> I know, hear you. That sort of a deal. But, yeah. I could dunk softball. Yeah, I never yeah, got a I could full do basketball. I could do that too, but that's because I couldn't comfortably palm the ball to yeah to get it up. So and I just couldn't. Yeah, I couldn't get the. Yeah, I don't know. I was, I tried for yep. a number of years. Yep, yep. it's never that cool. Yeah, for sure. So we'll see. You know, I need to yeah. start doing some more calisthenics or something like that. Yeah. Some more explosive <laughs> exercises to get my hops back. Yeah. Oh, and I was so jealous too. I played uh, ward ball with my uncle. Who is that? Um, what they call it? They call it ward yeah, ball. Yeah, ward basketball. Right. Yeah, there'd be five of us. Yeah, it really helps when your uncle's six six. Yeah, that does and help. has hops, so he could he could jump and grab the top of the backboard. Yep, yep. You know, and all the other guys are complaining to the state president. Or yeah, whatever. that's great. Whatever. That's great. Yeah, it was a good good time. Yeah. I, I could never jump out of the gym, but I definitely used to be able to jump more than I can now. So yeah. It's, uh, well, and I never dunked, but I definitely did the pass. I did the alley-oop to someone who could. Yeah. And that's also a cool feeling. Yeah, that is. That is. <laughs> You're the, the uh, uh, John Stockton yeah. of the bunch. Oh, yeah. So, well... <laughs> cool great story <laughs> suffering all right yeah so now we're <laughs> getting get into to... suffering <laughs> um yeah this is all right so yeah today getting into the material here we're looking at second corinthians one to seven and the subtitle here is be ye reconciled to god the uh dates that are on this that the lds uh, wards will be studying this material is september 11th to the 17th and uh, yeah, not not a whole lot to say once again on the beginning parts because it's just the same old, same old. Uh, the teacher prompts you do have again the the classic um, uh, think about specific class members, those who come and those who don't. As you read the text, how could these principles? How could the principles in these chapters bless them? Yeah, notice too. It's they're doing this kind of. Um the term I wrote next to it this time, I don't know if this helps. It's it's like spirit textual archaeology, right? Where it's it's not the text as a text. You got to dig into it to find the principle spiritually. And then it's not what the apostle teaches in the text or as the text. It's what you imbue the meaning yeah. of the principle that you found among the ruins. Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Does that yep. help to get yep. it across? Oh, yes. The, for sure. the text is a means to them finding what they want and see as an eternal principle. Yep. Definitely. And then they talk about it. The authority of the Apostle Paul is never even affirmed, really. Yeah. Um, yep. If you take a second to read around anytime they claim to. For sure. Okay. So, what we're going to do today is we're going to work through basically one section at a time. So, there's four major sections in the teach the doctrine portion of the curriculum, and they are covering very broad topics. Um, honestly, we, we could make any one of these sections the, the focus, but we're going to try to just hit a little bit on three of them primarily, and not as much on the fourth one, uh, because the fourth one is on repentance. We've covered repentance before, 
and uh, just don't have as much on that one this time around. But the other three are covering the very big topics, first of suffering, secondly of forgiveness, and then third, we're going to talk about reconciliation. And in particular, we're going to talk about a evangelical or credo-Christian view of imputation on that portion, because the uh, text that they are looking at is a text that we often take LDS people to, to talk about the doctrine of imputation, which is a doctrine that is completely missing from LDS theology. Mm-hmm. Um, so first, let's jump into the uh, section, which is titled, Our Trials Can Be a Blessing. And the cited scriptures in this are really all over the place. They cite 2 Corinthians 1, 3-7, 4, 6-10, 17-18, to and 7, 4-7. to Now, if you're familiar with 2 Corinthians, you know that the Apostle Paul is talking a lot in this book about his own particular sufferings, and it seems he is writing to a church that is enduring some sort of suffering as well. So let me just read perhaps the first uh, portion there so you get a bit of the flavor of what's going on in 2 Corinthians. So 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 to 7, this is out of the English Standard Version, says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we endure. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, so you will also share in our comfort. So that is the very beginning of 2 Corinthians and really characterizes much of the book of 2 Corinthians, which is uh, focus a lot on Paul's sufferings as an apostle, and apparently the church, of course, enduring some suffering as well, sharing in the sufferings of the apostle Paul as they all uh, share in the sufferings of, of Christ, um, as Paul would also uh, allude to in uh, the book of Colossians that I'm preaching through right now. So, um, yeah, so there is definitely a, th- uh, a doctrine of suffering to be discussed within this text. Now, getting into the LDS understanding of it here, they, in their subsection, say, our trials can be a blessing. And then they go on and say, the experiences Paul described in the counsel he gave in 2 Corinthians can help class members think about the blessings that can come from their trials. To start a discussion, you might ask a class member to come prepared to talk about how a trial blessed his or her life or what he or she learned from someone else who endured a trial. Then you could give class members a few minutes to review the various texts of Scripture and to look for what Paul taught about the purposes and blessings of trials. Ask class members to share what they find. You might suggest that they read aloud the verse in which they found a particular teaching and then share an experience or testimony related to that teaching. To add to your discussion, consider singing together some of the favorite hymns of the class that have to do with uh, various trials. And after singing together, you might invite class members to look um, for a phrase in 2 Corinthians 1 and 4 that they feel fits the message of the hymn. Okay, so... That's the foundation that they lay, at least in this particular curriculum, for thinking about trials and sufferings. And at least it appears on the surface 
that they want to embrace suffering as being a part of the religious life that they're all called to live, and how do you therefore process your sufferings, and uh, whether or not that's always been their mentality, that is uh, up to you, Skylar, to answer for us, and uh, how that maybe has changed a little bit through the years, and what it seems like their current understanding of suffering and trials is. So, uh, you've got some good stuff on that for us, so fill it out. Well, they, uh, I mean, and this this cannot be just me, but so much of the emphasis when I was growing up was basically you obey all the rules, you, you do what you're supposed to do, and God will then bless you because the blessing is contingent upon the obedience, yeah. and then your life is going to be great. And the reason other people's lives don't go well it's because they're not following the rules or not following them enough or not doing just enough to get those blessings. You know, yeah. You know, if you weren't healed, you know, you didn't have enough faith. And if this sounds familiar, it should. Read, I mean, I'm sorry, uh, watch American Gospel because there's a whole cohort of fake Christ, false teachers yeah. like Benny Hinn that, and Kenneth Copeland who have done the same thing. Yep. Um, supposedly evangelical. They're not evangelical. Um, so they, um, it is interesting to see the emphasis this and then the next of trying to complicate that and make it seem like, you know, um, in fact, they are um, necessary for us in our progression. So um, this it's been a while since we cited this talk. I'm going to read this and then get into how they structured their day on this. Um, but just to remind people of this Holland talk that we, it's been a while since we mentioned, but this is... Um, I found one reference in Brigham Young that had something similar. So this isn't entirely new, but the, the emphasis on this is new to me anyway. Mm -hmm. This talk in October 2020, Jeffrey Holland, Waiting on the Lord, where he does the, you know, a similar theme, but he says, um, let's see. I too suggest that one's life cannot be both faith-filled and stress-free. It simply will not work to glide naively through life, saying as we sip another glass of lemonade, Lord, give me all thy ch uh, choicest virtues, but be certain not to give me grief, nor sorrow, no pain, nor opposition. Please do not let anyone dislike me or betray me. And above all, do not ever let me feel forsaken by thee or those I love, right? This idea that, you know, I mean, this is part of the human experience. Mm -hmm. Then he says, in fact, Lord, be careful to keep me from all the experiences that made thee divine. There's the Mormonism. You catch that? So once again, the tone of this is, of course, how silly it would be, right? And so, yeah, sense the irony in the text. In fact, Lord, be careful to keep me from all the experiences that made thee divine. Mm -hmm. And then when the rough sledding by everyone else is over, please let me come and dwell with thee, where I can boast about how similar our strengths and our characters are as I float along on my cloud of comfortable Christianity. Um, well, uh, I would say that if God became God by experience, yeah. <laughs> by passability, yep. not, not just that he has that uh, property, uh, which we don't confess at all, but that he needed it. Yeah. He needs to be passable in order to be divine. I would say that's pretty different. Well, it doesn't come through as clearly in the lesson as they have it, but there's one glimpse of this. First, they start it by really emphasizing that you need to use objects and pictures. You know, 
they're supposed to cover the text, but you know, use objects and pictures, uh, and encourage students to bring a picture or object that represents a source of comfort to them. Okay. Ironically, right after that, they remind the students about Corinth from the first Corinthians, you know, in case they couldn't remember last week and, you know, the reputation for idolatry. I'll just let that sit there. But anyway, uh, the truth that they get from verse four is when we receive heavenly father's comfort during our trials, we can better help others to also receive it. And the activity is think of someone and, and you choose them. So you think of someone in your mind, you choose them, and then you think about what you have learned that may help this person. And then you find a phrase or verse you feel would be meaningful to the person you chose. So you're supposed to find phrases and words. Um, maybe we'll come back to that. Yeah. And after that, you do something because it's all about the doing, right? So you do something now to help this person feel Heavenly Father's comfort. Consider praying for them. In addition, you could write this person an encouraging message like Paul did to the Corinthians. Mm-hmm. Although your message may be a text, an email, or a note instead of a letter. Because, you know, that's all this letter is, right? Yeah. It's just, okay. So, um, now, they cite this talk by Elder Paul Johnson. And I was like, Paul Johnson? I, he's a great author. No, not that Paul Johnson, if you, you know the book Modern Times or anything. Um, great author. Great scholar. April 2011. This Paul Johnson, this LDS General Authority, he says this. Sometimes we want to have growth without challenges and to develop strength without any struggle. But growth cannot come by taking the easy way. Growth cannot come by taking the easy way. We clearly understand that an athlete who resists rigorous training will never become a world-class athlete. See the expectation for the LDS? Yeah. We must be careful that we don't resent the very things that help us put on the divine nature. There it is. There it is. And so, you know, it, <laughs> they, um, the emphasis on experience against the backdrop of progression, but with this new emphasis on progression through experience is, I think, an appropriate way to start and end this section mm. um, that they have. But of course, yeah, no, no, they don't even go out of their way to uh, refute, to describe, let alone refute are confessional. And when I say confessional in this, I mean, all forms of Christianity, right? Confess yeah. the impassibility of God. Yeah, yeah. And uh, they don't even have mm-hmm. any sensitivity toward it. Yeah. Isaiah 40 uh, verses, uh, just, I'll read one and following, says, uh, Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hands double for all of her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken." I just think when you consider the concept of comfort from the Old Testament, uh, the sort of concept of comfort that the Apostle Paul would have had, his comfort is rooted in the objective acts of God. And primarily, I wouldn't be surprised if he had Isaiah 40 in mind, the objective acts of God in Christ, what God has accomplished in Christ to reconcile us to him, to make peace between 
a, a hostile man and God by Jesus's uh, life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. And so the work of Jesus becomes the comfort to the soul of the Christian. And I think that that's what Paul is holding within his mind, because as you read on in 2 Corinthians, all of it is really geared towards what God has accomplished in Jesus and that being the source of the comfort for the believer. So um, I just think that's one thing that's worthy of noting is within the context, the comfort that you find in the midst of every suffering is what God has done for you in Jesus. It's not these uh, ongoing uh, you know, uh, appeals to have emotional experiences that bring you comfort. No, it's something that's rooted in what you can see and know from the scripture and what Jesus has already done for you. And that's where you rest as a Christian. That's where you find your hope. That's where you find your comfort. So right, there's that. But yeah, fascinating. To, it's fascinating to hear you lay some of that stuff out because uh, this has been one of the tenets of theological liberalism as well, yep. which is to try to, of course, blur what we talked about over and over again this year, the creator-creation distinction, to try to bring God down into more human ways of thinking, to make him more like us rather than us being conformed uh, into into his image, not, of course, as, as deity, but in uh, the creational image, but to, to try to basically make him feel more relatable. And, uh, you know, I can remember reading uh, different books back in my school age years. Oh, I can't remember the guy, Harold something, wrote a book that uh, became pretty popular. It was uh, 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 an answer to the problem of evil. And huh. the, uh, the kind of solution that he tried to give was God suffers. And uh, because God suffers, uh, we can endure our suffering knowing that he is a suffering God and, you know, feels our pain in every yeah. way, shape, and form. And so these kind of things are things that have grown popular on more of the mainstream, I guess, liberal side of, of uh, evangelical Christianism, whatever you want to call that. We wouldn't call it Christianity at all, but, you know, right. uh, these are concepts that are not unfamiliar for us. And you've mentioned the doctrine of impassibility, which is a fundamental doctrine within the Christian faith that helps us identify that creation-creator uh, distinction that we keep saying is so yeah. important. Even and, in the uh, person of Jesus. Yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. um, so, so how do you deal with the sufferings of Jesus in light of that? Well, that's why it's so important to keep the two natures of Jesus distinct from one another. Yes, in his humanity, Jesus suffered, but never in his deity did right. he suffer. Right. And here's why this is important. Matthew Barrett lays some of this out in his book, None Greater, The Undomesticated Attributes of God. In other words, what are the attributes of God that are unique to God, that are not shared by humankind? And one of the things that he begins laying out in a whole chapter on this doctrine of impassibility is how the concept of impassibility has been so unique to every other religious system. Because Unchristian un or non-Jewish religious systems tend to create gods that are like us. And so right. he begins talking about, in particular, the, uh, the Greek gods, how they were gods that had all sorts of passions, all sorts of emotions, um, all the way down to uh, a particular quote in here of one ancient myth that conveys the, uh, the actions of Zeus um, 
and the pantheon of gods, and and it says this: there might there might you see the gods in sundry shapes committing heady riots, incest, and rapes. So the gods are portrayed as these sort of driven by emotions, driven by feelings, driven by passions, following those passions, using their power to do whatever they want to do with their lives, and that's the Greek pantheon. They are yeah. gods that are controlled by emotions. And uh, then he goes on to write, Barrett says, in contrast to these Greek gods, God has been described throughout church history as impassable mm-hmm. or as one who is without passions. Our God is, by nature, incapable of suffering, and he is un- insusceptible to emotional fluctuation. Rather, we worship a God who is in complete control of who he is and what he does. Never is there any action by God that is out of line with his unchanging character. Instead of being divided by different emotional states or overcome by sudden unexpected moods, moods that reveal just how vulnerable and dependent he is on what we do, the God of the Bible is a God who never becomes anxious, lonely, or compulsive. He is never at odds with himself, divided over conflicting expressions of his perfections. No, this God is the impassable God. And he goes on and says, here's what impassibility is and here's what, what it isn't. If we understand uh, what, what it means for God to be impassable, it's best for us to grasp what it means for God first to be passable. If he was passable, what would that mean? And he gives three characteristics. First, for God to be passable then means that he is capable of being acted upon from without and that such actions bring about emotional changes of state within him. Second, moreover, for God to be passable means that he is capable of freely changing his inner emotional state in response to and interaction with the changing human condition and the world order. And third, last, passability implies that God's changing emotional states involve feelings that are analogous with human feelings. God experiences inner emotional changes of state Uh, either of comfort or discomfort, whether freely from within or by being acted upon from without. By contrast, what does it mean for God to be impassable? God is impassable in the sense that he cannot experience emotional changes of state due to his relationship to and interaction with human beings and the created order. Um, So that's what the doctrine of impassibility is in short. And here's why this is so important, because ultimately the God of the Bible is a God who is in control. He's in control of the world, and obviously, to be in control of the world, he needs to be in control of himself. And for him to be the kind of unchanging God that is testified about all throughout the scriptures, he has to be a God who is without emotion, a God who is without passions, a God who is without the fluctuations that can come from an outside source inflicting something upon him that would cause him to change course, uh, to change his mind, to do something other than what he would do. No, no, no. The God of the Bible is consistently presented to us as a God who is absolute, Mm -hmm. a God who is unchanging, a God who creation cannot thwart his plans, his purposes, uh, his glory, and and thus he must necessarily be a God without passions, a God Mm -hmm. who's not going to be determined by some outside force, manipulated by some Mm -hmm. outside force. By anything apart from him. Yeah. Which would diminish the full deity, the transcendent quality of a God who made created everything else. Yeah. Change is 
fundamentally a feature of created things. That's right. And created beings and created persons, right? Yep. So yep. it's, yeah, it's big. I mean, God says in the Old Testament, I'm not a man like yourself. He says, in fact, one of the sins of Israel was you, you keep thinking I'm like you. Yep. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you. I mean, this, yep. <laughs> you know, he, in his mercy, condescends into language and, and then, of course, intervenes at, uh, at its apex in the person uh, and work of, of Jesus Christ in mercy to the, cre- the creature. Yep. But he doesn't change by doing that. Yep. It, if, if there's a single second, if there's a single molecule apart from his control, it's not the God of the Bible. That's right. And ultimately, this gets really practical really quick because when I think of a God that I want to worship, I think of a God that I ought to be able to trust. Yeah. And uh, y- you can't ultimately fully trust a God who is able to be manipulated uh, mm-hmm. or convinced to, to be or to do other than what he has been doing. Um, you know, you a, a true God in the sense of the God that's presented in the Bible and even like a God that is conceptually able to be thought of in the world of philosophy is a God that has to be absolute. I mean, yeah. this is a, this is a, something that even philosophers in the past yep. have stretched for to, to try to say, if there's a God, then this would have to be a necessary quality um, of that God. He would have to be absolute right in some sense and that is the god that you see presented in the bible um, now that doesn't mean that god is not able to relate to his creation no. um even on an emotional level and what i mean by that is th- th- this is this is what makes the incarnation so beautiful is the god who is without passions steps into the human experience when he takes on flesh and becomes man becomes man and jesus as a man experienced emotion mm-hmm. jesus wept absolutely you know jesus felt compassion yep. jesus jesus steps into the human experience and experiences all that we experience emotionally uh, he experienced anger you know, wrath towards sin, right. um, the, all of these different emotions. And, uh, but, but all of the, those emotions are, uh, an aspect of his humanity, right. not an aspect of his divinity. They don't add to God as God. Correct. He's not learning in a sequence or adding to who he is. He's, He's full. Yep. He is the fullness. I mean, Paul, t- right, in correcting the Gnostic idea of fullness, yeah. talks about the fullness of deity dwelt in Christ bodily. That fullness, for the from the biblical mind, is the absolute transcendence. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. He doesn't need created things. He's not adding to himself yep. by creating, yep. but he's creating because he wants to. Yep, yep. And, and it, yeah, there's a mystery. People say that doesn't make sense. It's not... It, Ultimately, our two-pound brain, whatever it is, you know, is not meant to fully comprehend this. Yeah, it's we're, we're talking about God, and, yep. and by the way, this polemic is pre-Nicene. I mean, Aristides of Athens, right? This is one of his main arguments against idolatry: is how silly it is that you have all these people who should know better who treat God like he's a man when he's obviously not. And this is post-incarnation. Yep. This is not. A, this is an apologist of Christianity. Mm-hmm. He's not denying the incarnation. He's not denying the humanity of Jesus. But he's mocking the gods, the false gods. Yeah. And and I'm glad you made that point about even the philosophers. And Matthew Barrett does make this point, and I think it is interesting thought experiment that, in a sense, though it's not the triune God who exists, 
you know, the God of Plato, the God of the unmoved mover of Aristotle, it's still closer yeah. uh, to, to Christianity than any Mormon conception. Yep. Yep. Which is yeah. provoking. Which it is, which is pretty, and that, and once again, uh, you don't have Jesus. You don't have the true God. Yeah. Either. Uh, now but. you could you could have philosophers who, uh, you know, ideologically uphold a closer concept to this unmoved mover, but don't share anything resembling a Christian ethic. Right. As a result, and so I think that's where it gets a little uh, fuzzy. Mm-hmm. Is uh, is when you got the LDS faith that has a God that is totally contrary to the God of Scripture, trying to apply a Christian ethic in the way that they live their daily lives with a different sort of a God who's the yeah. head over that Christian ethic, and that gets some into the uh, next section yeah. on forgiveness. So we move on to Second Corinthians two, verses uh, five to eleven. And I'm going to start us off just by reading that text in particular. It says this, and this is from the English Standard Version once again, 2 Corinthians 2, verses 5 to 11. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. Okay, so the subtitle that we get into in the LDS curriculum is Forgiveness is a Blessing We Both Give and Receive. We've all had experiences when someone has caused grief for us or our family. Perhaps class members could search these verses looking for counsel from Paul about how we should treat someone who has offended us. Consider inviting class members to review Matthew 5, 43 to 48 and Luke 15, 11 to 32 to learn more about how we should treat those who have offended us. How do we harm ourselves and others when we do not choose to Forgive. So that's what we get on this next section on forgiveness. Skylar, what do you have for us on this particular LDS doctrine? Well, um, I notice that they, the impact that they emphasize is on ourselves and, and others. But, I mean, I'm not just saying this to be mean. The quotes they include, I feel like I'm being sold insurance. You know? It, it's better. You're better off. There's no need to be hurt twice, you know. Um, you need to level up and and forgive. Um, the the talk and we don't have you know this this talk is bonus episode worthy at some point um, to go through line by line. But let me just read some of this and forgive me if I read too much. But I think it's key to see this. And um, we spent a lot of our prep right before just talking about this talk, just because. This is something that I'm still learning about. I still struggle with, uh, definitely. Anybody that knows me will <laughs> attest to that, uh, my struggle with this. Um, and and this is a theme that's been in my family. You know, I've mentioned in past episodes that my grandmother was the woman uh, who forgave and was in Spencer W. Kimball's book as a, as a great example mm-hmm. of forgiveness. Um so, and yet I've also seen 
uh, not taking anything away from her experience relative to the story that's included. I've also seen, though, how that can be, in a sense, weaponized to overlook accountability that's needed, even in the family, right? So this, this talk is Kevin R. Duncan, the, the Healing Ointment of Forgiveness, April 2016, and um, the, the description right underneath is, forgiveness is a glorious healing principle. Once again, just principle. It's always principles. We do not need to be a victim twice, right? So the idea is if we don't, you know, release the stuff inside, right, it hurts us again. We can forgive. Okay. He, um, he tells a story we won't go into. He, in a similar way, an unforgiving heart harbors so much needless pain, I'm convinced that most of us want to forgive, but we find it very hard to do. When we have experienced an injustice, we may be quick to say, that person did wrong. They deserve punishment. Where's the justice? We mistakenly think that if we forgive, somehow justice will not be served and punishment will be avoided. This simply is not the case. God will mete out a punishment that is fair, for mercy cannot rob justice. Remember, the, we, this has been a theme all year. It's the impersonal, I guess, law of the cosmos. There's one for mercy, one for justice, one can't rob the other. And if God violates justice, he would cease to be God. This ties into the first point. In LDS theology, God could cease to be God. Not theoretically when we're talking about, you know, logical capabilities based on what God has revealed in Scripture. No, no, no. They mean it literally. God could fall. It is a hypothetical possibility that all the gods could fall if they were to change their minds and rebel. So that's simply not the case, right? God lovingly assures you and me that, you know, and they cite the DNC, leave judgment alone with me for it is mine and I will repay. They cite the Book of Mormon. As victims, if we are faithful, if we are faithful, we can take great comfort in knowing that God will compensate us for every injustice we experience. Because that's, God's in the business of, you know, here you go. Here's 20 bucks. That'll fix the problem, right? Mm-hmm. Elder Joseph B. Worthlin, another general authority, stated, the Lord compensates the faithful for every loss. Um, skip ahead. As we strive to forgive others, let us also try to remember that we are all growing spiritually, but we are all at different levels. This is our, his argument for forgiveness. You know, we're not all, you know, progress to the same degree. You know, go easy on those murderers. <laughs> not just to pick out a group, but right. I, I'm trying to make an extreme. I'm showing the logic in the extreme yeah. to try to show some of the er- erroneous assumptions behind it. While it is easy to observe the changes in growth in the physical body, it's difficult to see the growth in our spirits. One key to forgiving others is to try, try to see them as God sees them. Well, how does God see them? Once again, I would say God's right. Why the singular at times God may part the curtain and bless us with the gift to see into the heart, soul, and spirit of another person who has offended us. This insight may even lead to an overwhelming love for that person. Wait, so the behavior is this, but if you were to see into their heart, spirit, and soul, you would love them more. What's mm-hmm. the assumption there? Yeah. And and this, <laughs> talk yeah. about therapeutic, the idea that, oh, we're all good people just trying to be better. And the deeper you go, the better it is. No, no, no. The Bible says the deeper you go, the worse it is. Yep. That's not, and Jesus says that heart, you know, serpent hearts. And <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I was telling you before that I've been reading, uh, uh, some books by, by, uh, 
Russian or I guess pre-Soviet author, yeah. and I can't ever say his last name. It's Dostoevsky. Rough. Yeah, Dostoevsky. Yeah, it's a it's a struggle. But, yeah, uh, yeah, it's just it's it's fascinating reading. Uh, this sort of literature that is centered in a very different context from the one that we currently live in. And I think it just goes to show that, uh, you know, many of the ideas that become popular in culture are the result of whatever the current state of the culture is. And uh, there's some philosophies that are only going to to be held to uh, when you're in a really uh, wealthy, comfortable, rich yeah. society. And yeah. I think humanism is one of those because when you read Dostoevsky, if I'm even saying that right, <laughs> you you get uh, a picture of an author who is a uh, Eastern Orthodox Christian writing in a time when the most notorious, uh, well-respected job that you could have in that culture was that of a terrorist. You know, the, the, the celebrated figures in society weren't the doctors, weren't the lawyers, weren't the, uh, the pastors or the, the ministers or, you know, anything, the, the best job you could have, like the guys that everyone looked up to and said, I want to be like that when I grow up were the people whose job was to kill and to terrorize in order to help control the population for the sake of the government. And everyone accepted this as good. It, you know, it wasn't just like, eh, we, we'll live with it. No, no, no. The culture was such that people celebrated that this is good because people need to be controlled. And this is the best way to control them is through fear tactics and things of that nature. And, uh, and uh, you know, Dostoevsky is writing with a, with a more of a Christian ethic and a Christian perspective where he's peeling it back and he's showing, look how depraved man is. Like, yeah. look at how wicked man is when they're mm-hmm. left to their own devices to just go and do what they want to do and live how they want to live. And so, so some of this concept is just, would be un, uh, I mean, try to present some of this stuff to Dostoevsky and he's not even going to, He's not, he's not even going to recognize you. Oh, oh. so if you see inside the person, you're going to see a good see person even better. who's yeah. just doing bad things. No, yeah. no, no. He's seen what what depravity can become. And, right. and our doctrine of total depravity that we both uphold doesn't mean that man is as wicked as he can possibly it's not be. absolute depravity. It's that if God were to to pull back his common grace from man, which is, which is of course, the... The common grace that we see revealed in uh, in the rainbow, you know, mm-hmm. and, and like God gives humankind common grace in the Noahic covenant that ensures that man will be held back from becoming as wicked as we could possibly be so that we can still somewhat thrive in society. But if God were to allow us to be as bad as we could possibly be, we would be unimaginably wicked. Yeah. And uh, and you see some people given over to the judgment of God displaying elements of this wickedness within society. And all of us have that potential within us. The potential within us is a potential toward greater wickedness, not toward greater righteousness. <laughs> that's right. And that's the reality of what we see manifest in hum- humankind throughout the centuries. Right. Uh, you, sh- you just can't read history and think, People are so good, you know, They're <laughs> yeah. so good. I don't know what history books, I don't know what mirrors. I, I honestly don't know what these guys are even thinking. Yeah. And to say, oh, well, and, and this this ties into their denial of original sin and their, their, and their bizarre views of children as these like perfect little entities until we ruin them, yep. whether it's societal forces or, you know, it's always the parents' fault. Not that there's not societal forces and not that the parents... 
parenting style doesn't impact it. Yeah. The point is, do you have to teach a kid how to steal? No, you have to teach them not to. Yep. The the entire motivation of the heart. And this is even in child psychology studies that from scientists that deny all this stuff, they show that if kids think parents are watching, their behavior completely shifts than if they think they can take something and get away with it. Yep, yep. It, 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 as early as we can measure this stuff. Yep. And, and observe this stuff. So if you could see into the human heart, you're going to be less, less to want to forgive. Right. And when we see, you know, whether it's a true crime story, the Holocaust, the crimes of communism, what is our immediate self-protective way? Our sinful heart wants to scapegoat it and make them less human, turn it into a comic book, uh, make it all about, um, it's those people. Yep. And, and then if you push even some, some people who would do that, they'll say, well, it's genetic. It's, they will find some way to get away from the brute fact that in Adam, we are depraved. Yep. And in fact, we should mourn when we see the extreme cases of it. Yeah. Because apart from the grace of God, so there goes us. Yeah. Yeah. I, I even, you know, was, was uh, just reminded here and you talk about this because it, it could be tempting to even want to say, oh, yeah, I mean, our society is so much better than the uh, pre-Soviet era <laughs> and all that stuff. And, yeah. and it's, you know, I was just uh, reminded of a, of a friend who was out doing, trying to do counseling in front of the abortion clinic here in Salt Lake City. Yeah. And a woman walks by pushing her child in a stroller and goes off on them saying, you are wicked people. You were, you were wicked out here trying to prevent women from going in to, uh, to make the choice that they have made. And, uh, um, my friend looks down at the baby and says, well, well ma'am, I'm so glad that you didn't make that decision with your baby. And she looks him square at the face in the face, uh, with almost tears in her eyes and says, I would have killed this baby if I wanted to. And, uh, and <sighs> he just looks at her and says, that is so wicked, ma'am. And, yeah. and her only response was, well, I am wicked. And she walks off. Well, and, uh, one and thing, right. you know, I mean, we just, we, we want to point fingers and say like, oh, this is stuff that maybe exists in form site, but not anymore. We're getting better. We're getting better. And yet millions upon millions of babies are being murdered um, on a, on a yearly annual, you know, stacking up basis. And we turn our eyes to the moral atrocity yeah. of what's going on in society. So we're just, we're just as guilty of doing this sort of thing in our own society. We just mask it over, yep. you know, with our own, uh, pleasantries and our own ethic preferences, um, and, and whatever else, but, uh, boy, we, right. we still are manifesting this kind of wickedness. Absolutely. We just rationalize in different ways. It morphs its shape. It's the same fallen human heart and the degree to which the material conditions of society have improved. It's not because the vast majority of people are any smarter. In fact, we're probably not. Yeah. It's because we've been blessed to be born in a time where technological innovation and empirical science and all these things. It's not because we're any better. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I don't know. But we like to take credit for that and then shift the blame and scapegoat a group or a person say, I would never do that. I'm a good yeah, person. That's right. Then where does evil come from? Yep. That's right. So he, he continues once again, you just can't believe that this theme, he, he's assuming everyone's with him here. And I, it's funny when you made that comment about Dostoevsky, I was going to say, well, don't you realize the true, the one and only true church of Jesus Christ with the unique authority that where the leaders supposedly talk to Jesus, even though they can't, keep their lines straight over five years, let alone, you know, 2000, but is teaching this. I mean, it's just unreal. One key to forgiving others is to try to see them as God sees them. How does that? 
right? Apparently seeing deeper makes them better. Because remember, this set of gods loves all his children, and his children means everybody. The scripture, and he says this, the scriptures teach us that God's love for his children is perfect. He knows their potential for good, regardless of their past. See, so the gods look down, and even people who have wrong behavior, that's that's the problem, right? Just, you know, the good people trying hard, but they're not good enough yet. You know, they're at a different spiritual level. You got to work with them to the, get up to the higher level. And he just knows their potential for good. Yeah. Right. I mean, so don't judge, you know. Uh, by all accounts, there could have been um, a more aggressive or harsh enemy. Or sorry, by all accounts, there could not have been a more aggressive or harsh enemy of the followers of Jesus Christ than Saul of Tarsus, I would actually say. Uh, what does Jesus say to Saul? Why are you persecuting me? He doesn't point that out. But uh, Yet once God showed Saul light and truth, what does that assume? Once God showed Saul light and truth, there was never a more devoted, enthusiastic, fearless disciple. See, so all he needed was better information. The problem wasn't sin. The problem was ignorance. Just well-meaning ignorance, right? I mean, this is so crazy. Honestly, yeah. I, how do the, the scriptures teach this? What scriptures is this guy reading? Um, oh, he's a general authority in the one true church of Jesus. Uh, Saul became the apostle Paul. His life offers a wonderful example of how God sees people not only as they currently are, but also as they may become. Yeah. And this is going to shift their whole view of forgiveness. I'll hold some comments on that till uh, just a couple more quotes, just so people get the sense how this does not stop. Um, to forgive is not to condone. We do not rationalize bad behavior or allow others to mistreat us because of their struggles, pains, or weaknesses, but we can great, gain greater understanding and peace when we see with a broader perspective Certainly those who are less spiritually mature may indeed make serious mistakes, yet none of us should be defined only by the worst thing we have ever done. I know what he's saying, mm -hmm. but he doesn't believe that. Yeah, There are plenty of people in history that he's going to remember from the worst thing they did. Hey, uh, Elder Kevin Duncan, mm -hmm. look, look at Auschwitz and say this with a straight face. Yeah, That's what I want to see. Say this with a straight face, looking at pictures of Auschwitz. Yeah, Christ Himself, when He was unjustly accused, said, "Father, forgive them." We're gonna, you know, we're gonna talk about this. Yes, He does teach this, but I, you know, this guy, why is He using this? In our short-sightedness, we may sometimes find it easy to develop resentments toward others who do not act or think the way we do. That's the problem. See, so if you get sexually abused, just just remember they're at a lower spiritual level, and they just don't see the world the way you do. Yeah. That's what this guy's teaching in general conference. Yep. We may form intolerant attitudes based on such things as rooting for opposing sports teams, holding different political views or having different religious beliefs. That is so not the point. Mm -hmm. it, it, that wow. And then of course he quotes the great Russell Nelson to promote tolerance and learning quotes the book of Mormon. This, this is the last thing. <laughs> Brothers and sisters in the competitions of life, if we win, let us win with grace. Just give yourself grace. Give them grace. Because, you know, we're the source of grace, too. We're not only the source of comfort, we're the source of grace. We just have to look within. If we lose, let us lose with grace. For if we live with grace toward one another, grace shall be our reward at the last day. <laughs> we must remember that forgiveness of our own sins and offenses is conditioned 
upon our forgiving others. Mm-hmm. Wow. Cites, wrong, he, wrong condition. Yeah, cites the Sermon on the Mount there. Yeah. And cites the Lord's Prayer. Neither of which do they take seriously as we covered in the past. Yeah. And so it's, I could say more, but let me just jump to this. Holland. First, they, they cite James Faust saying this, two quick quotes. If we can find forgiveness in our hearts, once again, in our hearts, for those who have caused us hurt and injury, we will rise to a higher level of self-esteem and well-being. Because that's the goal. You got to rise to a higher level. This is getting in the way. So you should do it for you, right? Holland, notwithstanding even the most terrible offenses that might come to us, we can rise above our pain only when we put our feet onto the path of true healing. Only when we put our feet onto the path of true healing. Well, (laughs) I don't know what you do with the thief on the cross from either angle, the the, the evil he did and the forgiveness he received from Christ. But I mean, that's the scriptures. So yeah, I I don't know how to land this other than you had some great distinctions that some people should absolutely hear, but I just want where I was the most, what I find so absurd is the lack of the emphasis on sin, on the reality of the problems, right. and on the absolute, undeserved, amazing grace of God in Christ yep. to come into the mud to see us at our worst and yet forgive us. Yep. That so that that's the main note that I made on this particular section is uh, I just underlined how do we harm ourselves and others when we choose not to forgive in the curriculum, and I just wrote. Once again, horizontal. So, yeah. the uh, the uh, there, there's no consideration of our sin before a holy, righteous, and just God, and the kind of forgiveness that we receive in Christ, because they don't have that as a part of their theological system or or concept. There's no true forgiveness. There's just a resetting to zero, where you can now try to earn God's favor by meriting good works and uh, earning God's grace, essentially. And so um, very different from the biblical perspective. And so if you don't have the vertical right, if you don't have the the understanding of how we are, uh, just speaking of even the next passage that we'll be covering, reconciled to God, how yes. we are at peace with God, how we are made uh, into right relationship with him through what he has accomplished in Jesus. If you don't understand the overwhelming forgiveness that we have received from God, and, and the radical nature of this is God is the one who can see the human heart. Yeah. God sees into our wickedness more deeply than we even perceive our own wickedness. He sees the secret thoughts of men. He sees how bad we would be and how even much worse our thoughts would be if we were allowed to be as wicked as we could be apart from his common grace. And yet he still forgives. But how? How does he forgive? And this is where it's so essential because anytime that you see these sort of uh, uh, encouragements in the Bible, I mean, the Lord's Prayer being one of them, the encouragement is always forgive others as you have been forgiven by God. And so if you don't have a proper understanding of how we have been forgiven by God, you're never going to come to a right understanding of how we can forgive one another uh, in the context of our human-to-human relationships. And so all of this uh, talk within the LDS faith doesn't have the grounding that 
it needs once again. It doesn't have the foundation that it needs once again. It doesn't have the root that it needs once again in order to produce the kind of fruit that real forgiveness looks like. You can only truly forgive somebody from the heart if you understand the forgiveness that you've received from God in Christ Jesus. And so there's a good book called Unpacking Forgiveness by Chris Bronze where he works through some of this theologically. And in his chapter on defining forgiveness, the divine pattern, he begins by uh, highlighting a few different aspects of God's forgiveness, biblical forgiveness, his forgiveness of us. And this, of course, is the pattern by which we learn how we ought to forgive one another, is by how God has forgiven us. So the first point he makes is that God's forgiveness is gracious but not free. God is not just freely forgiving anybody and everybody and just saying, well, I'm going to let you off the hook. No, it's it's gracious, but it's not free. And how is that the case? Well, uh, we see this laid out in uh, 1 John 4.10, where John writes, And this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be a propitiation for our sins. So the forgiveness of God is made possible because justice has been administered. And, and that justice wasn't turned toward us if we were in Christ. It was turned toward Christ in our place. God poured out the punishment for our sins onto Jesus. That's what propitiation means. It means the turning away of wrath from the one who deserved it and the pouring out of wrath on one who in this case did not, that being Jesus. So he absorbs our punishment. So the forgiveness that we're receiving from God, from, uh, from God is not a cheap forgiveness. It was a costly forgiveness. The point is that that our sin was punished, but the punishment wasn't toward us. It was toward the Son. For for Christians. That's right. For for believers. For believers only. Yeah. That's right. If you don't believe, that's not you. That's right. Absolutely. Um, And then he goes on and, and he says, the second point, God's forgiveness is conditional. Only those who repent and believe are saved. Now, this is where we really begin to step away from a current modern understanding of forgiveness, which is more therapeutically based, right? More of the uh, the the typical, like, the only person you really need to forgive is yourself, and you need <laughs> yeah. to come at peace with yourself, yeah. and you need to realize you're not a, a bad person. And, like, it's, yeah. it's very Give much about grace. how do you get to feel good yeah. um, is kind of the common yeah. understanding of forgiveness that, that we tend to have. But here, you know, we see that God's forgiveness is conditional, and this gets into what you just said. Only those who repent and believe receive God's forgiveness. Now, we are soteriologically reformed, uh, yeah. both of us. And so we would recognize very clearly that this condition is not a condition on election. This is not a yeah. condition on regeneration. No. Uh, this is seeing in its right place the the order of salvation. And the way that we understand the order of salvation is that God begins this work of salvation in election before the foundation of the world. And then it, it really is administered to us by the work of the Spirit through first regeneration. And the, the regeneration, of course, is God making our hearts alive, which enable us to respond to God. And we respond in repentance and faith to the regenerating work of the Spirit. God wakes us up. We respond in repentance and faith. And once we respond in repentance and faith, justification becomes a reality for us. And justification, of course, includes the forgiveness of sins. And so God only forgives those who repent and believe. Now, of course, we know the only people who repent and believe are the people who are are, yeah, made alive by the Spirit, Mm -hmm. Um, the Spirit being the gift there. So 
so, but nonetheless, repentance uh, or forgiveness is conditioned on the basis of of repentance, and so um, we we cannot truly forgive, even in a human to human way, somebody who's not really repentant, and 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 that's keeping forgiveness in its proper place in its proper category. There's other categories in human to human interaction that are really vital for us to. Uh, insert here because we're not saying that a Christian can be bitter um, and and harbor bitterness against someone who's done wrong to them. No, what we're saying is there cannot be true reconciliation between a relationship unless the party who is offended is truly repentant. And uh, that's the case between us and God as well. Unless we have really repented, turned from our sin, trusted in Jesus alone for our salvation, and not in any other means of salvation, only if that has been our response, uh, can we have confidence that we are forgiven of our sins. Right, because the goal is not um, in, in, in what L. Gregory Jones calls the, the psychological captivity of the church that's focused on therapeutic forgiveness. Yeah. Forgiveness is defined in the therapeutic mindset, right? It's just feel good uh, between the parties. Yeah. But there's still, does that pay for sin? Does that fix the harm? There's an invisible side to this that is what is handled at the, you know, at the cross. Yep. And without both parties being reconciled there where the justice and mercy of God meet, how can there be capital F forgiveness if I can try to distinguish the two? Yep, yep, that's good. Some of the other principles that Braun lays out in his book says forgiveness lays the groundwork for and begins the process of reconciliation. So you don't have, uh, you, you never will have forgiveness separate from reconciliation. Forgiveness and reconciliation will always go hand in hand because God forgives uh, in order to reconcile us to him. Um, that's the justification, reconciles us to God. Um, and restores us in relationship to him. And then he goes on and says, forgiveness does not mean the elimination of all consequences. And he brings out some different biblical examples of that, one being David and Bathsheba. David still had to suffer the uh, death of his son as a result of, of, of a consequence for his sin. Even though he'd been forgiven, there still were consequences in this life right. for his sin. And so we're not... That, that, again, is to say that we're not saying that, you know, if, uh, if somebody... Um, who who did murder um, becomes a believer. We're not saying, well, they shouldn't have to go to jail because now they've trusted right. Jesus. No, there ought to be consequences in this life. That's what God, yeah. by his common grace, gives us uh, the justice system yeah. is to administer justice in this life and ensure that there are consequences. And there there could be consequences for for sin, you know, in other ways too. Let's let's say you live a licentious uh, uh, way of, of living and uh, you're sleeping around and you get a sexually transmitted disease, you know, like that's going to be a consequence for your sin. Even if you come to Christ, you know, there's no guarantee of healing from that sort of a thing in this life. And uh, um, so, so that's what we mean is there yeah. still are consequences, yeah. even if forgiveness is there, mm -hmm. but you see how essential it is that we have this vertical understanding of forgiveness, right? Because unless we understand truly what we have received, full, complete, total forgiveness for all of our sins that we have committed so that we are restored and reconciled to God, brought into right relationship with him, unless we understand that we're not really resting in Christ and thus we can't extend this kind of true forgiveness to our fellow man if it's not something that we have even understood in our own hearts, right? Right. Yeah. And it's, uh, what is it? I'm trying to remember the exact term. 
it's not going to come to me, but that there's fatherly discipline. Yeah. You, you know, but yeah. it, that's, it's not salvation being contingent on it. That's right. And, and similarly, you have to look, you know, this guy using Matthew, it's just unreal using the words of Jesus to say, Hey, plus, you know, if my cells pitch didn't work, if you don't forgive, you're not going to receive forgiveness, which of course, ironically, he doesn't put this out in a system where the goal is to not need it. Yeah. To be perfect enough that you don't need to repent. Yep. Yep. Um, it, but the, the idea is with this, and we've dealt with a few of these when we were covering sections in Matthew, right? The idea is not that, hey, you have to do this and then I will forgive you, right? It's, it, you know, it's the issue is whether forgiveness sought from God is mirrored in the attitude of those who pray, right? And of course, those who, if you read the whole Lord's Prayer and you know, we do at least every Sunday, but every day it's it's a, it's a prayer for this day. You know, the idea is those who see their need for forgiveness are going to be in an attitude of forgiveness, mm-hmm. even if there's not that capital F forgiveness that you're pointing out possible, at, you know, at, at this time. Um, I The Westminster Larger Catechism, this is... Um, Last thing I got on this section, but I just thought, compare what this general authority said with the Westminster Confession on the fifth petition, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Acknowledging that we and all others are guilty both of original and actual sin, and thereby become debtors to the justice of God, and that neither we nor any other creature can make the least satisfaction for that debt. We pray for ourselves and others that God of his free grace would, through the obedience and satisfaction of Christ, apprehended and applied by faith, acquit us, both from the guilt and punishment of sin, accept us in his beloved, continue his favor and grace to us, pardon our daily failings, and fill us with peace and joy in giving us daily more and more assurance of forgiveness, which we are the rather emboldened to ask and encouraged to expect when we have this testimony in ourselves that we from the heart forgive others their offenses. And, um, you know, I, I think this understanding too informs, as you pointed out, even Western law, why, why are criminals given last words? Yeah. And, and by the way, why is the punishment different whether they can understand what's going on? Mm-hmm. This is based on the Christian worldview where they ha- are given the last chance to repent. Mm-hmm. Not that they're not going to get the punishment yeah. for, for crimes committed, but to give them, because how dare the state care about sal- the salvation of the people? I mean, yeah. how dare they? Yeah. And that notice that's still there in our legal system. And most people don't remember why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, we got to move pretty quick on this next section because we are we're already out of time. <laughs> I apologize. So, no, no, that's on both of us. Uh, <laughs> okay, the so, section we were going to spend the most time on. Yeah, I don't know how that <laughs> happened. All right, this one is so key. Second uh, Corinthians five fourteen to twenty one. Let me just read this from the ESV. Um, it says this: For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this. That one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. 
The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us a ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 21. We often quote uh, verse 21 in particular to LDS people out here. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay, so in the LDS curriculum, this is what we get. Through the atonement of Jesus Christ, we can be reconciled to God. And they say many people come to church with the desire to feel closer to God, and a discussion on 2 Corinthians 5, 14, 21 can help them. To begin, class members could explore the meaning of the word of reconcile, perhaps beginning by looking up the word in a dictionary. What insights does this provide about being reconciled to God? What additional insights do we gain from the entry atonement in the Bible dictionary? How do these insights help us understand 2 Corinthians 5, 14 to 21? You may want to invite class members to share their feelings about the Savior whose atonement made it possible possible for us to be reunited to God. Okay, a lot of red flags should be going up yeah. for any evangelical listeners on this particular section after you've heard what I've read, and especially if you've been with us and you've heard us cover quite extensively the doctrine of the atonement from an LDS perspective versus the true and right perspective. We also have covered the concept of reconciliation quite in depth, but what do you have to fill in for us this week, Scott? Okay, I'll, I'll try to hurry on this. Just I want to show they speak through both sides of the mouth. I'll put the link in the show notes if you want to see, but they will say things like this. Fortunately, through Christ's atonement, they could be brought back into favorable relationship with God. Brought back. Notice the assumptions there. But it does say, and receive Christ's righteousness, period. But then the next sentence, the lesson can help you draw closer and become who he wants you to become. Right? So, you know, they will say, what blessings do we receive as we strive to live in Christ? You know, be sure to you know, help students understand the process of becoming pure like Jesus Christ requires a lifetime of effort. So I could show in more detail the fact that, I mean, you could literally quote one sentence and make it seem like, oh yeah, evangelical. But then you quote a different sentence and it shows they mean by that something completely different. And I get the sense in this, they never say this explicitly, but if you think about it carefully, I get the sense that what they mean by receiving Christ's righteousness is you're receiving the ability to be just as righteous as he. Yeah. That That's what they mean. And that's why grace, you know, and they cite this, we covered this before and with Nelson, right? Grace to them is like this power, you know, power up and become a righteous. Um, I, and then one thing too, just to show the polytheism coming through, they actually articulate in verse 21 that, you know, instead of two persons of the Trinity, they make it the two different gods. They say, you know, look for references to Heavenly Father, Jesus Christ, and you, right? And um, so it's, you know, we, <laughs> I'll just read one more. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, this is the seminary manual, Paul teaches that although Jesus was never guilty of committing a sin, in the Garden of Gethsemane and on the cross of Calvary, we've covered that before, he took upon himself the burden, the weight, and the consequences of our sins. When we earnestly seek to be forgiven and made into a new creature, we accept Jesus Christ's offer that if he will have if we will have faith in him and repent of our sins, he will take our sins and when we can receive his righteousness. 
right? If he will take our sins, we can receive his righteousness. In this way, we will be made pure just as he is pure. And ironically, they cite Colossians 2, 13 and 14, uh, a passage that mentions the cross. But anyway, uh, so yeah, they, now um, don't have time to go into detail, of course, but Richard Lloyd Anderson, uh, there's a doozy here where he talks about um, Christ's atonement. Um, and this is how his, he views reconciling, right? This is the end of the Save by Grace tract, but it was the beginning of Paul's life of gratitude. Once again, he flips it, right? It's as if it's a beginning rather. Reconciliation means peace. And of course, Richard Lloyd Anderson turns it into the, you know, the ladder again, um, where he says, for second Corinthians five ignores passive Christianity and steps confidently along the path of responsible Christianity, which of course his view, the old sins and the old ways should be passed for those who have accepted Christ's true gospel. And he does the comparison of the death. The old person is vital. A uh, new person meets readers in these letters. Yet Christ is not only savior for the saints. He's also their example, which once again, I would say, Based on your ladder, how is he a savior at all? But he, he'll throw in, he is also their example on the road to perfection where they must carefully walk by the Spirit, right? So um, it, it, you've got to fit obedience somewhere in there. So he never really deals with what reconciliation really means. Yeah. So the uh, text here is uh, pretty clear in what it says starting in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, okay, if you've been with us lately, you know that we've been focusing a lot on in Christ being the doctrine, of course, of union with Christ, which is a, a fundamental doctrine to understanding how our salvation works. It is all in Christ. It is not in us. We are saved in him, by him, through him, and uh, he gets all the glory. But Paul, of course, says here, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Notice the uh, present tense uh, vibes going on here. Yep. He is a new creation. If, if you're in Christ, you are a new creation. Something new has begun in you. Now, what's the difference between people who are in Christ or not in Christ? Um, you know, is that something that uh, is like a daily thing that we decide whether or not we're going to be in Christ today? Or is, is uh, Paul speaking in more clear, uh, objective language here? He says, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now, here's what's fascinating. The old has passed away. That's past tense. That's aorist tense. That means that that's, that's gone. It's in, it's in the past, right? Um, that, that means that there is a fundamental change that has occurred in everybody who is in Christ where the old person that you were, that stuff has passed away. And behold, the new things have come. Now, what's fascinating about that particular verb is it's in the perfect tense. Now, people who know their Greek know that the perfect tense is referring to something that occurred in the past but has an ongoing effect into the future. So it's an objective thing that happened. It's It's been done, but it continues to have an effect even in the here and now. So the oldest passed away, behold, the newest, the new has come. That means that there is a continuing growth in these new things on the basis of something that objectively has already changed in the past, essentially. So what we have going on here is, is a very Pauline thing. It's an inaugurated eschatology. That's just a really big way of saying that Paul loves to think about the future hope, the future glory, the future end and direction of all things. Everything is being summed up in Christ. Everything is being reconciled to God in Christ. Everything is going to be set 
right in Christ. Christ is the end, the purpose, the means. He is the the reason for the existence of all things. So um, he has this big view of Jesus. And when it comes to the kingdom, uh, when it comes to what God is doing in the world, he sees the work of Christ as being something that was inaugurated at the cross. It was inaugurated in the life, death, resurrection of Jesus, this new kingdom, this end time, new creation, inaugurated there, begins there, but is continuing to grow and will one day be brought to an absolute completion in Christ on the last day. And so he envelops the experience of the believer into this inaugurated eschatology, which means that God has begun a work in us that he will bring to completion. And this work is all going to be brought to completion on the basis of his promise, which is that all who are in Christ will be made complete in Christ. So he sees this work of reconciliation, this new creational work as being something that has begun in us. And it began in us at the objective work of Jesus on the cross. When he died, that's when the the work began. And then it is really uh, administered to us as individuals when we are regenerated, when we are made alive together with Christ by the grace of God. And then we begin to walk in this new life, in this new creational reality, and grow within that new reality as we are walking in Christ. Uh, but this is all something, of course, that is happening by his by his power. And so Paul sees it in this passage, reconciliation within this lens. Reconciliation is something that was accomplished at the cross. It was accomplished when we, we were brought into a position of peace with God on the basis of what Jesus did by suffering the punishment for our sins, the things that we even just talked about in forgiveness. But uh, it's something that is in our real-time experience and even in the experience of this world not yet brought to total completion. There is a futureness to it that it will be brought to completion on the last day when we will know in full what we now know in part. Um, so that's a, a little bit of what's what's going on here. But notice how it seems to me that verse 21 is totally ignored. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in, in him we might become the righteousness of God. There's a lot to be said, of course, on how LDS people think that we gain righteousness. Do you gain righteousness by some internal thing that you grow in yourself where you as a free agent make the decisions that credit righteousness to your account. Paul would have none of that. He says, for our sake, he made him, so God made Jesus to be sin. That means that Jesus was regarded as one who was sinful, even though he was one who had never sinned. He was regarded and treated as our our sins deserved. Um, He who knew no sin made him... uh, or he made him to be sin who knew no sin. Why? So that in him, in Christ, when we are in him by faith, when we're trusting him alone for our salvation, we might become the righteousness of God. This is what uh, Martin Luther famously called the alien righteousness, the great exchange. Um, He loved this passage, and I love this passage too, because what this is showing is that we get the righteousness that's required before God, not from our own agency and growth and righteousness, but from the righteousness of Christ being credited to our account as if it was our own. And so we'll often ask people, do you believe that you can be considered as good as Jesus right now? And, uh, and we'll, we'll take them to this verse. And obviously their, their answer is always no way, no way I can I be considered as good as Jesus right now. I'm like, okay, if you're in Christ, based on this verse, what you just said is not true. You can be considered as good as Jesus right now because Jesus's righteousness is yours. If you're in him, 
by faith. That's the beauty of what we call the doctrine of imputation. We have the imputation of sin that comes to us through our father Adam, and in Christ we have the imputation of his righteousness that is credited to us as if it were our own so that we can be considered as righteous as Jesus before God uh, by faith and by faith alone. So that's my spiel. What you got? Yeah, and just the the emphasis on what is reconciliation? It's peace with God, which assumes the enemy status. Mm-hmm. That's right? right. That people are not otherwise good, but then, you know, I guess Adam had to bring some death so that we could make choices and progress and therefore are reconciled in the sense that we'll, you know, I guess it makes up for, you know, that little bit of cost investment. You know, that's what it was. The fall of Adam was an investment so that we could try and Jesus is making up for, you know, he'll, he'll be our new debtor. You know, mm-hmm. kind of a thing. No, 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 no. We're at enmity with God, and that's necessarily at our peril. The, the the wrath of God is is being revealed and will be revealed in hell, right? Yeah. And the idea is that now, because of Christ and because of His gift that we receive by faith through faith, we are enabled to enjoy good relations with God, the Triune God. Of scripture, and that's 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 what's getting that is what it is. Yeah, <laughs> reconciliation the, uh, in the apostolic preaching of the cross. Leon Morris has a whole chapter on this term for reconciliation, what it is conceptually, and it all has to do with peace with God and shalom, peace. Like, yeah, you know, not that we're not at conflict, but that, that the the you know, as Isaiah talks about the weapons being broken, right? Yep. Um, and that's why Romans five one. I think it's Romans 8.1. There, there's no condemnation That's right. for those who are in Christ Jesus. And uh, just to, just read this tiny little bit um, from Leon Morris, where he talks about reconciliation has to do with the bringing about of harmonious relations where these did not exist before. Mm-hmm. And the metaphor directs attention to an estrangement and to the overcoming of that estrangement. The metaphor in itself is concerned with this, right? And only with these things. And so how does that tie into atonement? Well, what's, what is the estrangement? In the particular manner in which the estrangement is overcome, it is possible that substitution may occur. In the particular case of the atonement, the root cause of the estrangement is man's sin. So long as that sin is there, harmony with God is impossible. Accordingly, reconciliation proceeds by doing away with sin, and the method of doing this was by the atoning death of Christ, which is why even ironically in some of the citations they cite, what does it emphasize? Mm -hmm. The the cross, right? Uh, Not the garden. They can't cite that, but okay. Whatever may be the case with other acts of reconciliation, Scripture is clear that the reconciliation between God and man could be brought about only by the death of the Son of God. Accordingly, we may discern a substitutionary element, um, that reconciliation comes into existence through the death of Jesus, Romans 5.10, which here obviously not only benefits us, being a revelation of the love of God, Romans 5.8, but is a substitution for us, 2 Corinthians 5.20. So I, yeah, just, I guess um, they, in their denial of original sin, you know, there's a lot of Christians that are inconsistent with this category of imputation, mm-hmm. Right. Mormonism, I guess, is a little more consistent in denial of both. Yeah. But then what, what you're left with is literally the center of the Bible being the sacrifice of the Holy Son of God, the second person of the Trinity in his humanity. They don't have an... Why? Yeah. What's, what's going on? Yep. 
Yeah, and just to even read the line after thinking through what this these verses are saying, the line in their curriculum, you may want to invite class members to share their feelings about the Savior whose atonement makes it possible, possible. Yep. for us to be reunited with God. And uh, yeah, what, what Paul is saying is, no, 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 the atoning work of Jesus makes it certain. <laughs> yeah. and, and it's something that if you are in Christ, you, you know in part now. And one day it's certain that you will know it in full uh, because he completes the work that he begins. Um, we, we are reconciled to God on the basis of what Jesus has accomplished already. Uh, you know, your, your salvation is made certain 2,000 years ago on a Roman cross. It's not uh, made more possible as you do the things that you're supposed to do. Um, no, it's in Christ. In Christ is where your salvation is. And so you rest in him, you rest in his finished work on the cross, and uh, and you continue to walk in these new creational realities as one who has been made a new creation by your faith in him, your trust in him, which is the means by which, of course, you're united to him, uh, which, of course, is only made possible because of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit uh, who awakens you to these realities and enables you to respond. It's a gift of salvation that's given to you, not one that you earn. You got right. something to wrap us up here? Well, yeah, I just thought this is interesting because it ties to the first point that we covered. They they end the lesson this way in their seminary manual. What thoughts and feelings might the sinless Son of God have experienced as he willingly took your sins upon himself so you could be reconciled to God and change? Yeah, that's not a finished payment. That's not. No. It, it, let alone imputation of the righteousness that's he, right. he has earned. Yep. Uh, we, in a sense, we're saved, we are saved by works, but the works of one, Jesus Christ. Yep. We're saved by his works. Because you got to be saved by perfect works. Right. Not by imperfect works. Right. Yep. Um, and then they say this, ponder how you or someone you know has experienced the healing plus recon- and, and reconciliation, once again, as they are using it, that the Savior offers through his atonement. Consider asking students to share any thoughts or feelings they have. Remind them not to share anything too personal or private. Don't be too vulnerable here. We're only talking about God himself bleeding on a cross for his people. Don't don't make it too serious here. Yeah. If they share an experience, ask follow-up questions like, what did this experience teach you about Jesus Christ and his atonement? Or what actions did this person take that allowed him or her to be reconciled to God? Let me repeat that. What act after all of this, what actions did this person take that allowed him or her to be reconciled to God? Why do you think these actions made a difference? I could, and just the first section, the Westminster Confession on Justification. Let's do it. How about that? Let's finish We'll there. end with this. Yep. Those whom God effectually calleth, he also freely justifieth, not by infusing righteousness into them, a medicinal thing, but by pardoning their sins and by accounting, accounting and accepting their persons as righteous, not for anything wrought in them or done by them, but for Christ's sake alone, nor by imputing faith itself, the act of believing or any other evangelical obedience to them as their righteousness, but by imputing the obedience and satisfaction of Christ unto them, they receiving and resting on him and his righteousness 
by faith, which faith they have not of themselves. It is the gift of God. That's good. All right. Well, we will see y'all next week when we are looking at 2 Corinthians 8 to 13. God loveth a cheerful giver. See you then.